16 years ago, October 2nd, 2006, a man by the name of Charles Roberts IV uh, entered a one-room Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he took a number of adults and a bunch of children hostage. Uh, After a little while, he allowed uh, all of the uh, women, uh, adults, and then uh, the boys to escape, Uh, and then he took a gun and he shot 10 little girls, ages 6 through 13, killing five of them, uh, before he turned the gun on himself. Sadly, this uh, kind of unspeakable tragedy has become commonplace uh, in recent years. However, there isn't anything common about the Amish school shooting uh, because there was an uncommon response from the Amish. Just a few hours after the incident, members of the community visited Robert's parents uh, to express their condolences and their support for the days ahead. What's more, at Robert's funeral a couple of days later, over half of the people there were Amish, and they were not there to seek revenge or to retaliate, but rather to show care and concern for Robert's family, including his wife and his three children. You see, in response to evil, the Amish decided to do something that I'm going to call today reverse fighting. Reverse fighting. So make no mistake, they didn't passively accept that the evil done to them. Instead, they fought back. They just fought back with good. In doing so, they gave a great example of what the Apostle Paul tells Christians to do in Romans 12, 21, when he says, don't allow yourself to be conquered by evil, but rather conquer evil with good. Since this passage is so key to what we're going to talk about today, and since it's also so easy to memorize, I want us actually to attempt to memorize it together today. Now, I'm using a Holman Christian Standard Bible translation because they use the word conquer. The English Standard Version uses the word overcome. And I think conquer really speaks better to what really Paul is calling us to here and to conquer, to defeat evil. And how do we defeat evil? We defeat evil by responding to it with good. So here's the passage. Why don't you say it along with me? Ready? Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. That was terrible. You can do much better than that, all right? So, so let's say it together again. Ready? One more time. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Now, I know you might be thinking, this is great and all, but I thought we were in the Sermon on the Mount. And yes, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. But our passage in the Sermon on the Mount today is about reverse fighting. And since Romans twelve twenty one gives us the big picture regarding reverse fighting, I wanted to start with it in order to show you where we're headed today. If you aren't already uh, there, then go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. One final time. After nine weeks, we're finally going to bring this great chapter to a close. And while you're turning, I want to warn you that as uh, you might have already guessed, we have another challenging text to tackle. In fact, uh, some of us are going to find this the most challenging text in the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, I just got to be honest with you, it's been giving me a butt whooping, okay, every week. It did that again this week. Hope that's an encouragement to you. Probably not. So let me say this. This passage has the potential to be immensely helpful to us. Here's why. We all regularly interact with people who do us wrong. 
people we might very well consider to be enemies. People who are difficult or hostile or even abusive. These people might be those on the other side of the political aisle. They might be a boss or a coworker or a fellow student. They might even be a family member, a spouse, a parent, a child. And for some of us, they might even be an ex. That's undoubtedly the case for for some people here today. This morning, Jesus is going to show us how to fight back against these enemies. And, And I do truly mean fight back. Jesus truly wants us to fight our enemies, although not in a way that leads to greater pain and damage, but rather in a way that leads to healing and to hope. So yet again, our passage is demanding, but it's also one that can transform our relationships in a way that nothing else can. Let me show you how. Follow along as I read, picking up in verse 38. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now here's what I'm gonna ask you to do today. I'm gonna ask you not to shut down. Because you might be really tempted already to shut down because of the difficulty of what Jesus is calling us. So you you know what he's calling us you to, and so you might be be just tempted like, hey, I'm just going to go go to sleep here, all right? And I just want to encourage you just to to allow God's word and God's spirit to, to work this morning. And I think that you might find that this really, truly can be transformation in your life. Now, with that said, in this passage, Jesus is correcting the misunderstanding and misapplication of two Old Testament commands, two very famous Old Testament commands. The first is found in verse 38 and is known as the law of the tooth. Now, I don't know why it's not called the law of the eye, but just known as the the law of the tooth, all right? Most of us know this law by heart and perhaps even quote it from time to time. However, it's quite possible we don't truly understand its purpose and function. You see, the the law doesn't give permission to retaliate against someone who harms you. In fact, quite the opposite is true. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a civil law, get that, a civil law that God instituted in Israel to promote justice and prevent individuals from taking revenge. So it wasn't meant to prevent, I'm I'm sorry, to permit revenge, but rather to prevent it. Before God instituted this regulation, if a family member was even slightly injured by someone else, it could result in the harming or the killing of one or more members of the family of the person uh, who had been offended. 
In other words, there was a type of kind of mob justice, a.k.a. uh, the Godfather or the Sopranos in the ancient world. Therefore, the law of the tooth was both just and merciful. It was just in that it assured that the punishment fit the crime, therefore protecting society by restraining wrongdoing. At the same time, it was also merciful in that it prevented even greater injustices from uh, occurring. So uh, here's the deal. If you were, say, you, you punched somebody in, in the mouth and you knocked out one of their tooths, okay, the, the, uh, one of their teeth, tooths, <laughs> teeth, one of their teeth, all right, you, you actually, um, they weren't actually permitted to punch you and knock one of your teeth out. What, what, what would happen is that you were required to pay restitution to them. So it, it was just, and here's the punishment fits the crime, but it also prevents, it's also merciful because it's going to prevent you from um, uh, them actually taking more of your teeth or doing something worse to you. You see, in Jesus' day, the people had taken what was given as a civil regulation and were using it as permission to become their own judge, jury, and executioner. They'd assumed for themselves the responsibility that God had given the government and failed to understand that they were never personally to seek revenge. That's why Jesus says in verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, we have to be careful that we don't get the wrong idea here. Jesus isn't talking about pacifism or self-defense. That's not what he's addressing here. What he's talking about is revenge. In fact, do not resist will be better translated, do not take revenge, because that's what Jesus is forbidding. He's talking to individuals, specifically to his disciples, his followers, and he's telling us that when people do us wrong, we're not to give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So Jesus isn't undoing, by the way, this civil law. He's still supporting that civil law. He's just saying, that's for the government. That's for the governing authorities okay, to take care of. It's, it's for justice and it's for mercy. But when it comes to personal relationships, my followers are never, ever to take revenge. Now, with that said, though, Jesus isn't telling us to do nothing. In fact, he wants us to take action. He wants us to respond. And he wants us to respond by engaging in reverse fighting. He wants us to conquer evil with good. You'll note that Jesus gives four illustrations for how we're supposed to do good in the face of evil. First, we're to reply to insults with graciousness. That's what it means to turn the other cheek. Second, we're to give our enemies more than they want. That's what it means to give our cloak as well as our tunic. Third, We're to go further than our enemies are forcing us to. That's what it means to go the extra mile. And then fourth, we're to be generous to those in need, even and maybe especially if the needy one is our enemy. That's what it means to give to those who beg or would borrow from you. I want to emphasize again here that Jesus isn't calling us to be doormats. He's not saying just just take it, just lie down and take it. And neither is he telling us to submit to physical abuse or illegitimate lawsuits or outrageous demands. The emphasis on all of these illustrations isn't actually on the action, it's on the person. We're to do good to those who do us evil, and it takes wisdom and discernment to know what that looks like in specific situations. But with that in mind, get this. 
The main thing we need to get here is that no matter the circumstances, Jesus calls us to avoid taking revenge and instead to respond to evil with good. Now, let me ask you, can we just be honest with ourselves here for a second? And you just need to be honest with yourself, not, not with me or with anybody else. Just be honest. How do you feel about this? How, how do you feel about Jesus' command not to ever, ever personally take revenge? Like, like, like truly, how do you feel? Does, does it feel oppressive? Does it feel a little ridiculous? Does it feel crazy even? I think if we're honest, it does for two reasons. One, getting revenge is applauded in our culture. Our culture loves the idea of, of revenge. I can prove it to you. Just think of some of our greatest heroes, John Wayne, Michael Corleone, Jack Bauer, John Wick, most recently James Reese. I'm trying to hit all the demographics here, all right? All of these guys we love, they're so popular, why? Because they are guys who never take it. They never take it from anybody and they always get revenge. In fact, in some ways we come to the point where we define a strong and courageous person as someone who's an avenger. See what I did there? All right, here you go. Of course, two, we also love the idea of getting our own revenge, don't we? I mean, who of us hasn't, laid in bed at night, dreaming of all the ways to get back at our spouse? Or who of us hasn't daydreamed at work just thinking of all the ways we can stick it to our boss or our coworkers? Now, I've never done any of these things, but I'm sure that you have. <laughs> all of you have. Now, we, we laugh about it because it's not too, but honestly, it's not too far from the truth. We, we have all delighted in the idea or the thought of getting revenge. And so all this to say, Jesus is asking a lot of us here, isn't he? And here's the thing. In verses 43 through 48, he goes on to ask even more of us. Because there, he tells us that we're not only supposed to do good to our enemies, we're supposed to love our enemies. Look at what he says in verses 43 and 44 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does God tell his people that they are to hate their enemies. However, people in Jesus' day had come to the point where they had begun to justify hating their enemies by claiming that if you love your neighbor, which the Old Testament does command, of course, then you must naturally hate your enemies. Pretty shaky logic, but it's not too far from what's happening today with tribalism. By its nature, tribalism promotes loving those who are in your group and hating those who aren't. To be fair, though, I should also point out that there are parts of the Old Testament, most notably the Psalms, where hating your enemies seems to be sanctioned. But this thinking is flawed as well, as what's endorsed isn't hating our enemies, but rather hating evil itself. So let me make it really clear. We're never to hate anyone, although we are, all, are called to hate evil. What Jesus is saying here then in verses 43 through 44 is that we're to love everyone, including those who insult us, those who steal from us, those who beg from us, and even those who abuse us. I use the word abuse because that's the word that Jesus uses in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6. 
As I say that though, I wanna give some nuance regarding abuse. Uh, If you've been either physically or sexually abused, please know that Jesus isn't telling you to stay in a physically or sexually abusive situation. In fact, the most loving thing that you can do for your abuser is to not stay in the situation, but rather to get help so that he or she can get help, possibly including through going to jail. I just want to say, if you need help with this, I urge you to talk to a pastor, an elder, a staff member, a community group leader, and we will either help you or we will help you to get the help that you need. I also want to say that loving your abuser very well might be a future destination instead of a present reality. Uh, By that, I mean that it might take time, maybe even a long time to get there. And if you've experienced trauma at the hands of another, I believe that Jesus is okay with it taking a while for you to get to the place where you can truly love that individual. Let me add one more thing. A lot of fits and stops here, uh, but I think it's necessary. There are certain situations in which it might never be safe for an abused person to interact with their abuser again. There are times, okay, Jesus' call to love our enemies doesn't mean that it will always be possible for a relationship to be restored. There are times where that may never be safe or wise. So once again, this takes a lot of wisdom and discernment. And so if you have questions about this, either for your sake or for someone else's, I once again invite you to talk with one of our leaders. With all that said, though, I need you to hear this. As believers, we're called to love our enemies without exception. If you're a follower of Jesus, then he calls you to love your enemies no matter what that individual has done to you. Now, here's the question, though. Why does Jesus call us to love our enemies? And this is key. In a real way, this whole message comes down to what we're going to talk about right now. Jesus gives us two motivations in this passage for loving our enemies. Number one, when we love our enemies, we reveal that God is our heavenly father. We reveal that God is our heavenly father. Look again at verses 44 through 48. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus' argument here is that because God the Father shows love to his enemies, his children will show love to their enemies too. So when Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven... He's not saying that loving our enemies is what saves us. Rather, he's saying that loving our enemies reveals that we have been saved. It reveals that God truly is our heavenly father. Let me explain further. In verse 45, Jesus is referring to a doctrine that is known as common grace. Common grace refers to the truth that God is gracious to everyone, even to those who hate him. In other words, he blesses uh, even his enemies, And so Jesus' point is this. God's children are going to strive to do what he does. God loves his enemies, 
And therefore, his children will strive to love their enemies too. Now, remember, we've been talking over and over about, uh, again uh, about the fact that the, the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us a portrait of discipleship. He's showing us what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And what he's telling us here that to be a follower of Jesus, okay, to be a Christian, to be a child of God, means to be like God is. And since God loves his enemies, that means following him, being his child, means to love our enemies too. And by the way, we should all be thankful that God loves his enemies, right? Because at one point, we too were his enemies. And if God isn't loving to his enemies, where would that leave us? Now, we really gotta, we really gotta grasp this. If God didn't love his enemies today, we would all be damned to an eternity in hell. That's a strong word, wording, but it's true. That is the reality if God isn't loving to his enemies. And when we truly, really what Jesus is saying is when we truly understand this, when we truly get this truth, when it really grabs hold of our heart and our soul, then that is going to make us into people who strive, and I use that word strive, to love our enemies too. Now, notice that Jesus ends chapter five by saying, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Let me explain what he means there. It it does not mean that we have to be sinless in order to be saved. That's not what Jesus is saying. If that was the case, none of us would be saved, right? It's not salvation by works by what we do. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that we are to strive to be perfect because that's what our heavenly father is. And we are to strive, we are to to attempt to give all that we can to be like him. And really what Jesus is saying is you will be perfect. So we are gonna be perfect one day. Isn't that wonderful? We're gonna be perfect like he is perfect one day. We're not there yet. We're not gonna get there in this lifetime. But because we are gonna be perfect one day, That should give us the motivation to strive to live in a way in which we are becoming more perfect. We are maturing. We are becoming more into the full measure of the stature of Christ, is how the Apostle Paul puts. And so here's the thing, okay? We really got to grab hold of this, is that, yes, loving our enemies is incredibly hard. For some of us, it will be the hardest thing that we will ever attempt to do. But what we cannot do as followers of Jesus is we cannot say, I cannot and I will not love my enemies. For us to say that means that we are saying that we truly are not a follower of Jesus and that he isn't our heavenly father. Because if he is our heavenly father, then we can do everything he has called us to do. How? Through the Holy Spirit that he has placed in us. We can be and we can do all that God has called us to be and do. Not perfectly, but that can be our destination, our direction, the thing that we are striving for in our lives. So the first reason that we love our enemies is to reveal that God is our Heavenly Father. Second, when we love our enemies, we come to know our Heavenly Father in a greater way. Now, this is, this is special, all right? So, so lean in with me here. When we imitate God in loving our fathers, our our enemies, it draws us closer to him. This is the reward that Jesus is speaking about in verse 46. So get this, we don't get rewarded when we love those who love us. We, we, We don't get rewarded, okay, when we speak kindly to those who speak kindly to us. We get rewarded when we love our enemies. And the reward that we receive is a closer relationship with our heavenly father. 
Note carefully what Jesus says in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself. That means make known myself to him. So get this. If you're a believer, your ultimate need is to experience the love of the Father in a greater way. Not in your head, but in your heart. To experience the reality that he's with you, that he's for you, that he unconditionally loves and accepts you apart from anything that you do. He just loves you, that he delights in you, and that he promises he's never gonna leave you and never gonna forsake you. Now, I don't know all that you've got going on in your life. I don't know most of what's going on in your life, but here's what I know. I know that today, each and every single one of you, what you need to know the most is that God is with you. You need to experience that in a greater way than you did when you walked in this room this morning. And what Jesus is telling us today is the way that we experience the Father's presence in a greater way is through obeying him and specifically through obeying him and loving our enemies the way that he loves his. So I just say, you, you want to experience the presence of your heavenly Father in, in a greater way. It is your greatest need. And what I'm pointing out to you today is the way that you can do that is through loving your enemies. You know, Research overwhelmingly reveals the huge impact that a presence of the, or absence of a father has on the life of his children. To be honest, much of the brokenness in our country comes from the absence of fathers in our homes. I don't know that anybody here would argue with that. Don't you think that this points to a greater truth that plays itself out in all of our lives? If the presence or absence of an earthly father makes a great impact on the direction of our lives, don't you think that the presence or absence of a heavenly father makes an infinitely greater impact? And here's the only difference. The only difference is that our heavenly father is always present, and we're the ones who determine if we're going to do the thing that enables us, the things that enable us to experience his presence. You following along with what I'm saying here? So, so you're not largely in control of whether or not you experience the presence of your earthly father. In large measure, that's beyond your control. But what I'm pointing out to you is that you are completely in control of whether or not you are going to experience the presence of your heavenly father. And you can experience the presence of your heavenly father in a greater way, maybe even a much greater way, by intentionally loving your enemies the way that he loves his. Well, that said, let's, let's talk about how we love our enemies. To return to our theme, how do we engage in reverse fighting? And, and listen, as, as I get into this, I, I, know, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, that's impossible. There, there's no way I can do it. And I just want to say again, you, you can do it. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you can do it. That Jesus never calls us to something that he doesn't empower us to do. And so, how do you love your enemies? Two things. First, you choose to act in a loving way. You choose to act in a loving way towards your enemy. The Greek word that Matthew uses for love in verse 44 is agape. And agape love isn't first and foremost an emotion or a feeling, but rather a resolve to do sacrificial acts. I want you to hear that again. 
Agape love is a resolve, a, a will you might think, to do sacrificial acts. Agape love is a verb, and therefore it's an action where we sacrificially do good for someone, in this case for our enemies. In our passage today, the good Jesus calls us to do includes doing good things, speaking good things, and praying good things. Doing good things, speaking good things, and praying good things. Now, already kind of hit on the doing and the speaking, so I want to home in here on the praying. Note again that Jesus says, love your enemies, and I think by praying for those who persecute you. May I suggest that this is something that all of us can do. If we can't see ourselves doing good things for our enemies or speaking good things to our enemies, can't we at least pray to the Lord for good things for them? If we need an example here, all we need to do is look to Jesus as he hung on the cross. So think about Jesus on the cross. Luke 23 tells us that in the midst of his immense suffering, what did Jesus do? He prayed for those who had nailed him on that cross, who were causing his intense suffering. Commenting on this passage, John Schott writes this, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? And I want you to hear this. As you pray for your enemies, you may very well find that you come to have affection for them. You see, there's supernatural power in prayer, and that's what you're going to need if you're going to love your enemies. You won't be able to do it on your own. So maybe this is the starting point. Maybe your one takeaway today is to commit to pray for your enemies. If you will, you very well may come to find that you can love them not only in action, but also in affection. You know, it's really hard. I know this from experience. It's really hard when you start praying for someone, not to have your heart start softening toward them. I found that out recently. Knew this passage was coming up. The Lord um, convicting me on it. I've got a couple of people in my life who are truly enemies or at least have been enemies in the past. And and I've just felt the Lord speaking to me say, listen, your heart needs to change in the way that it needs to begin to change. Here's what you can do. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for blessings on them. And what I found, got a long way to go, but what I found is that my, my heart is a lot more tender towards these individuals than it was when I began to start praying for them. Start praying, start with that, and you very well may find that you actually begin to love your enemies, not only in action, but also in affection. And it's when, get this, and it's when you love your enemies both in action and affection that you are truly being like your heavenly father. Now that said, here's an even more important thing you have to do if you're gonna love your enemies. You have to remind yourself of how God has acted in a loving way to you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. When you confront your enemy, 
Think, first of all, about your own enmity with God and about God's compassion toward you. Now, I don't know what I can say to help you get this, uh, but I do, do want to point out yet again that at one time you were God's enemy. And even now as his follower, as his child, you still at times act like you're God's enemy. Y'all with me on this? And let me just prove it to some of you. Some of you right now are acting as God's enemy because you've hardened your heart. You say, I'm not gonna do what he's telling me to do. Like, I'm not gonna love my, I'm not gonna pray for him. Uh-uh, ain't going there. And if that's what's going on in your heart, listen, it, it, I, I don't wanna say it's okay, but we all been there, I've been there. But, but you need to recognize that you are acting as an enemy toward the Lord and even now in your open rebellion, at least in your heart, he still has compassion on you. He still loves you. He still is having mercy on you. Do, do you realize that if God doesn't have mercy on us every single second of every single day, we're, we're done. We're done, right? If God allowed his wrath to go on us, if he didn't restrain it on us, none of us could live literally a millisecond. And yet he just continually is merciful on us. And then he is, he is so gracious to us in so many other ways. All the blessings he pours on into our lives over and over and over again. And yet we go on day after day and we refuse to be thankful or grateful to him to all the blessings he gives us. And yet he just shows mercy and compassion and grace over and over and over again. You know one of the ways he does this the most in my life? It is the most in my life by not just, just unleashing his wrath and anger on me because of my pride, because I don't recognize how gracious he is. And, and the point is that when we understand God's mercy and grace and compassion and love to us, what does that do? It enables us to be able to show that kind of mercy and grace and love to others. Here, here's how Paul puts it. In Romans chapter five, he says this, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you gotta get this. You're not righteous and you're not good. You're the sinner. Paul's talking about here. True of me too. In fact, and by the way, the word sinner there, two verses later, Paul says enemy. So you can just put enemies in there for sinners. While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. And friends, it's, it's this truth, this passage like this, that we have to remind ourselves of over and over and over again. Because as we do, it will transform our heart and give us the power to treat our enemies the way that God has treated us. The Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, gives a great example of this. Several years after the violent tragedy that I uh, mentioned at the beginning, three sociologists published a book entitled Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. There's a movie out too on Netflix. Don't watch the movie, read the book. That's general guidance pretty much all the time, all right? Especially in this case. Because the movie downplays forgiveness. The book is all about forgiveness. And in the book... The authors argue that one of the primary things that enabled the Amish to forgive was the fact that they immersed themselves in the truth that Jesus forgave those who tortured and killed him. 
You see, the gospel was at the heart of their faith, and it was a faith and a truth and a reality that they continually remembered and rehearsed and celebrate, celebrated. And as they did, they found possible, the seemingly impossible, the ability to love their enemy, the ability to engage in reverse fighting. I want to point out to you, this was their initial response. You just think about, I mean, it, you can't even really, it's just an unspeakable tragedy, right? You can't imagine to have something like that happen. And yet, what came out of them? Immediately, what came out of them? Grace, forgiveness, love, compassion. How is that possible? It's possible because they immersed themselves in the gospel and what God had done for them through Jesus. And so therefore, when they are faced with evil, what comes out of them comes out of them good and they conquer evil by good. So Harmony, there's a massive application here for each of us. If we're gonna conquer evil, we have to immerse ourselves in the gospel too. We have to regularly remember, rehearse, and celebrate it. We have to do it individually, and we have to do it together, day in and day out, week in and week out. We have to gather on Sunday and sing and worship through our voices these truths of the gospel. We have to come and we have to take part in the Lord's Supper together, remembering Jesus' blood that was shed and his body that was broken for our forgiveness. We have to gather in community groups to, to encourage one another, spur one another on in the gospel, to speak the gospel into each other's lives. We have to spend time in, in the word together and praying together. Why? Because our natural inclination to evil is to do what? Is to return it with evil, to fight evil with evil. And when you fight evil with evil, you just do more evil. And it just proliferates over and over and over again. It, it, it's only when we respond to evil with good that we actually defeat it. And Jesus gave us the perfect example of that on the cross. He took it. He didn't, he didn't respond with revenge. He could have. But he just didn't take it, right? He actually blessed those who persecuted him. And as a result, we are blessed too. And we've got to remind ourselves and rehearse this and celebrate it over and over again because as we do, that's what will, what will empower us to love our enemies and to defeat evil.